Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This episode of Speaking of Bitcoin on the Coindesk Podcast Network is brought to you by Nexo.io. They're worried that if they do enable a spot price, there'll be a massive influx of capital from everyday investors who don't know how to hold keys or set up an exchange account and who just will go on to their Schwab and various other brokerage accounts and just click on a button and buy some Bitcoin through the ETF. So on the last episode of Speaking of Bitcoin, we were talking about the Securities and Exchange Commission, better known as the SEC, and specifically how they're both not willing to change the rules to accommodate what crypto is, and how it's very structurally different than traditional equities for which the rules were written more than 80 years ago. Another area where this is visible, though, and which has become something of a personal sore point for my brain is ETFs or exchange traded funds. And on today's show, we're going to talk about it. But before that, introductions. My name is Adam B. Levine, and this is Speaking of Bitcoin. This time, I'm joined, as always, by the other host of the show, Dr. Stephanie Murphy. Hi. And Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. So an ETF, I'm just going to go through some basics here for a minute, is basically a way to invest into one or a group of assets where the company running the ETF or exchange-traded fund, as is the full name, handles all the complexity, and you can just mostly treat it like any other stock as an individual investor. Bitcoin ETFs in particular have been proposed by big mainstream players going back almost 10 years at this point. And in the last year or so, we've seen a number of them finally get approval with the first quickly growing to more than a billion dollars worth of assets under management at a faster rate than really any ETF that came before it. So clearly there is a lot of interest in the markets. And since that first approval, there have been a number of others as well. But there's more than one way to do an ETF. Everything that we've seen so far come to market can be described as a futures-based exchange-traded fund, while every spot-based ETF has been rejected. The SEC says this is because spot-based ETFs present more of a risk to consumers. Even though Canada has been approving them and markets have been trading Canadian spot Bitcoin ETFs in Europe as well, and even Ether ETFs for years at this point. Without getting too technical, the difference between the two is what is the fund really investing in? With a futures-based ETF, they're essentially using the Bitcoin futures markets to bet on the price of Bitcoin in the future. With a spot ETF, the fund is literally buying Bitcoin on behalf of investors in the fund. And this is where things get weird, at least on the surface. 
Bitcoin is a bearer asset, which means that if you hold Bitcoin, you literally hold Bitcoin. You literally control that Bitcoin. And there isn't any of what's known as counterparty risk. There's risk that you could do something stupid and lose it, but institutional custody is largely a solved problem, with companies like Coinbase even offering insurance for their clients' holdings. But futures-based ETS, futures in general, don't have that dynamic. You're making a bet that the price of Bitcoin will go up. And for every bet the price goes up, there has to be somebody else, a company or an individual, who has the other side of that bet, the bet that it will go down. They are a counterparty to the futures contract, which means if they don't have the money to pay, then even a winning bet can be problematic to collect on. Now, modern markets abstract a lot of this, but at a fundamental level, this makes a spot ETF where the money invested into the ETF is used to just buy and hold Bitcoin a vehicle that at least should be fundamentally safer. And yet, according to the SEC, the opposite is true. So with that kind of primer in mind, the thing that set me off on this one and why I wanted to talk about it is that recently a futures ETF was approved that used the 1933 version of the law that governs the SEC's activity. So this dynamic hasn't made sense for a while to a lot of us who have been watching it. And there is some stuff as you kind of read between the lines that might make it make sense. But at least on its face, the SEC has been saying that one of the reasons why they've been rejecting spot based ETFs is because they require the 1933 version of the law. And they had only previously approved futures ETFs under the 1940 version of the law, which does not allow for spot based ETFs. So this latest move by the SEC has made some people in the Bitcoin community hopeful again that we're going to see a spot Bitcoin ETF emerge because the reason why the SEC reportedly has not been approving them has now been sort of invalidated by them approving a futures-based one. But honestly, I'm pretty skeptical about all of this. And I think that there are ulterior motives here that are kind of pushing the SEC to delay, delay, delay as long as possible. Interestingly enough, there's beginning to be some pushback from companies that have repeatedly applied. And one of those companies is Grayscale Ventures. The Grayscale Fund is a fund that invests in Bitcoin, and it's not available as an exchange-traded fund at the moment. And as far as I know, you have to be an accredited investor to join it as a mutual fund. But it holds Bitcoin in trust for its customers. And it's been doing that for six years now. Uh, I want to say six. But for a very long time in crypto years anyway, and they've applied to make this an ETF or to launch an ETF and been denied repeatedly. And recently in an interview, the CEO of Grayscale was asked, you know, what options are you considering? And they said, all options are on the table. And specifically, that includes legal options, meaning they're going to sue the SEC for ignoring them. (laughs) Probably under one of the administrative procedures laws that basically require that when agencies of the government make certain rulings, regulations, et cetera, that they follow some logical process, that there is due process and consideration and that those rulings are not unduly burdensome, et cetera, et cetera. So under those kinds of laws, they're looking to sue the SEC. Now, maybe that's just idle talk and bravado in an interview, or maybe they finally had enough of this pussyfooting around, especially given the fact that in other countries, and not like third world shows 
but <laughs> Europe and Canada, spot ETFs are already running. So this is an area where the SEC has been absolutely behind the ball. And correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know what you guys think, but I think it's because they're worried that if they do enable a spot price, there'll be a massive influx of capital from everyday investors who don't know how to hold keys or set up an exchange account and who just will go on to their Schwab and various other brokerage accounts and just click on a button and buy some Bitcoin through the ETF. That will feed directly into massive inflow of capital into Bitcoin because every time someone buys the ETF, the ETF has to go out and buy some more Bitcoin. And that's what they're afraid of. Yes, I agree. I mean, I think that gold and precious metals ETFs do something similar, which is like expand access to investment in that thing that, you know, otherwise would be a little bit inconvenient. And you can certainly make the case that Bitcoin is a little inconvenient to learn about if you're not really interested in the technology, you just want to invest in it and you want to get some and you don't know what to do to hold it yourself. But hey, there's an ETF. How convenient is that? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there. It's weird though, right? Because again, like when we're talking about regulators, we're talking about people who are not supposed to care who wins or lose. They're supposed to care that the playing field is level and that customers or consumers are being protected from things that look a lot like fraud or, you know, fundamental mismanagement or kind of all these things that shouldn't really come into play at all when it comes to what type of Bitcoin ETF. The kind of read between the lines, I think, is exactly that. It's that when you're talking about these future ETFs, you're talking about, again, in the case of the ProShares ETF, you know, $1.2 billion of money that wants exposure to the price of Bitcoin, but which is being funneled into a futures vehicle, which means that to the extent that there's kind of more money coming in, it might push up the price of futures. There might be a kind of increase in premium there, but it never changes the supply and demand fundamentals of the actual underlying asset. And with a spot ETF and potentially with multiple spot ETFs, the kind of opposite is true. So with these futures-based vehicles, there's no real risk that inflows will then cause, you know, demand to increase for the actual, you know, underlying Bitcoin, which will then cause the price to increase because it's changed the supply demand fundamentals, which will then draw more attention to the fund, which will then draw more investors to invest in it. And again, we're living in a world right now where official inflation numbers are above 7% on an annualized basis. And you've got tons of big institutions out there like pension funds and insurance companies who have a mandate to try and find returns that are a couple of percentage points above the rate of inflation to appropriately manage the reserves that they then have to hold on behalf of other people. And so in that type of an environment, cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular looks like a pretty darn good investment. And it just seems to me that the potential of this ETF to Bitcoin price virtuous cycle really could be sort of the institutional moment that I think people have been looking for for a long time, but which has kind of been funneled into these other weirder and ironically less safe products as a result of just, again, the reticence on the part of the supposedly neutral regulator who very clearly, at least to me, doesn't seem to be very neutral at all. You were saying that Grayscale has already been doing this, but only for certain like they're not an ETF. So how do you get in on that? <laughs> you have to be an accredited investor and then you can apply and buy the fund. Yeah. So again, it's not having them as an ETF, 
is blocking access to anyone who's not an accredited investor. Right. And we've talked about this a lot on the show that there are a lot of opportunities available to accredited investors that others could benefit from, but they don't reach the bar to qualify. But it's like, how are you supposed to get over that bar if you're not allowed to invest in anything for your own protection? (laughs) Well, I mean, the whole idea about the accredited investor rules and you can make arguments either way again, whether it's, you know, a purely bad thing or a purely good thing or somewhere in the middle. You know, the idea there is that accredited investors have enough money and have enough potentially expertise that they can take these larger risks. The weird part here is that when we're talking about the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, which looking at it, you know, as of the last check had like $24 billion in assets under management, you know, I mean, again, you're talking about a physical spot ETF that's actually holding the Bitcoin that underlies and is actually undervalued by about 30% relative to what it's holding. So in theory, that looks like a much safer vehicle, actually, than these future based ETFs. And yet again, you see this behavior. Why is it undervalued? It's undervalued because because it's not an ETF, there are rules that apply to it that make it such that only certain types of people can come in. And there's no real reason why the premium would rise. Also, you can't just withdraw, by the way. If I remember, there's a period of time that you have to hold the fund. You can't just withdraw whenever you want. So there's complicated rules that involve and the whole point of ETFs is to simplify that and make it present just like a stock that has a price and that you can buy units or even subunits of anytime you want traded on an exchange like any other stock. That's the whole point. It makes the experience of participating in a mutual fund much, much simpler because it removes all of these complexities. And that's the sticking point here. You know, the irony of this. I first started working in financial services, you know, not in the financial side, but in the IT side. But I got kind of an inside view of this in the 1990s in London. And I remember at the time working on trading desk systems. And at that time, the dangerous new thing on the block was futures, was derivatives. So until then, futures had mostly been used for commodities. So if you knew you were going to need 100 metric tons of canola oil next year for your factory, you bought futures orders of canola oil because you knew you were going to need it. But at this point in the 90s, derivatives are being used by various hedge funds in order to do kind of leverage and speculation and to massively increase the risk that they expose their clients to. And a lot of these companies are beginning to trade derivatives and they're the weirdos. They're the risky ones. And here we are today and the SEC is telling us that a futures ETF of Bitcoin is safer than a spot ETF. And that just seems like exactly the opposite. I don't understand it. Maybe someone from the SEC can explain it to me. I don't get it. Although I would argue that the whole attitude of the SEC towards crypto has been a, I don't get it. I don't want to get it. Leave me alone. Go away. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting parts to me about the SEC's behavior over recent years, especially since the Biden administration started, is that they've kind of ranged from like an aggressive disinterest <laughs> and just not wanted to sort of take the kind of market seriously on the one side to sort of feeling like they are intentionally trying to sabotage things and intentionally trying to make things as sort of unclear as possible. 
And when Gary Gensler, who has a long history as a regulator and also has come back into sort of the education space and actually taught classes about blockchain, you know, when he was appointed commissioner of the SEC, there were a lot of people out there who were very optimistic because the argument or the thinking went that, oh, Gary Gensler knows about this stuff. He understands. And so therefore he will act in ways that make sense relative to the kind of ground reality that we actually have to deal with as somebody who's well informed about this. And as a increasingly cynical person, I think about regulators, that was never something I believed. And I think that I've been fairly vindicated in that skepticism for this because we've seen, if anything, sort of worse misunderstandings, you know, worse policy than we got from people who just didn't care at all and ignored it. It makes me think of Alan Greenspan, right? who had a long history as actually like an Austrian economist type person who had a very sort of deep understanding of the nature of gold as a reserve asset in the sort of pre-Nixon world, but who, when he actually got into power and was sitting as the chair of the Federal Reserve, actually was the one who started a lot of the really incredible you know, policy experiments that we've now seen amplify, amplify, amplify until we're to the point where the Fed has a $7 trillion balance sheet that they keep threatening to unwind, but which in reality looks like they probably never can. So there's this weird dichotomy that seems to exist where it's like the better you know something, you know, and the better you're able to kind of represent it or articulate the arguments about it when you're not in a position of power. Well, when you find yourself in a position of power, you become sort of the exact opposite. And it's very this kind of like Darth Vader mechanism that appears to happen. You know, I think the real answer is not to expect regulators to be better at innovating or accepting innovation. It's to remember why the hell we started our interest in crypto in the first place. And the reason was that it breaks out of the regulatory system because there is still a vast chunk of this industry that they simply cannot affect. And that is where the innovation is happening. It's not happening in the exchanges. It's not happening in the ETFs. It's not happening in the market speculation. It's not happening anywhere there. It's happening in all of the areas that the regulators can't touch, where we keep brewing nasty little surprises that challenge their preconceptions even more. And that's the reason I was interested in the beginning, and I'm still interested now. It's a pity that the vast majority of the media, the conferences, the talking heads and the interest in crypto seems to be around all of the price speculating regulated industry crap. But let's not forget that there's still a vast domain that they can't touch. And that's the interesting stuff. Looking for ways to step up your crypto game? Then go for Nexo. You can buy over 40 cryptocurrencies in seconds using your bank card, and you get free crypto rewards on each purchase or swap. How about earning guaranteed yields? Up to 17% paid out daily. Ideal for you hardcore hodlers. You don't even need to sell. Borrow instant cash or stablecoins against your crypto assets instead. Get the most out of your crypto with Nexo at nexo.io. That's nexo.io. I want to ask you guys both a question. Do you think that having Bitcoin spot ETFs widely available would actually act as like a gateway to get anyone who's not currently interested in the more, you know, cutting edge technology aspects into it? Or do you think the people that are interested in just, you know, 
buying an ETF are really not ever going to be interested in something like using the Lightning Network or, you know, like the actual technological stuff? I honestly don't know. I think it's going to allow a lot of people who don't yet have the technical capacity to deal with Bitcoin directly, dip a toe and treat it like a speculative investment. That's fine. Or savings vehicle. Certainly for Bitcoin, that's the case. They don't get any of the other benefits of ownership. That becomes even more noticeable when you're talking about smart contracts platforms. You know, if you own, let's say there was a spot ETF for Ethereum for Ether. I mean, if you own that, like that's even more pointless. Right. You're missing out on like a lot of the amazing things you could do with. Right. Because that's not an asset in no conception. So I don't know that there really is a bridge that brings those people in. On the other hand, the liquidity that that generates results in attracting more startups, more talent, more people doing research, more people building businesses, et cetera, et cetera. So that liquidity cycle feeds the technology for sure. It pays developers to build interesting stuff. And those developers are going to play in all the sides of the industry, not just the regulated ones. In fact, what happens, and I love this cycle, is they get the job for a blockchain company or a regulated exchange and they get a taste for it. And then they discover the vast, untapped, open source, exciting, innovative depths of this industry and they jump ship and join a startup. Something I predicted from the beginning was that one day I would run across someone who would tell me that they got into blockchain first and then they discovered Bitcoin. And that happened in 2017. I met someone at a conference who said, I didn't know about Bitcoin until recently. I was hired in a blockchain company, but now I discovered Bitcoin and I'm really interested. So for me, this comes back to something that I've talked about a lot, which is that cryptocurrency and Bitcoin in particular are on sort of the long, slow road to boring, right? And an ETF and basic participation supports all of that and is a necessary sort of stepping stone in getting from where we were 12 years ago, which is nobody thought it was going to work. Nobody cared. It really had no value. And, you know, like it was just kind of a technological experiment that only the wonkiest of the wonky people were actually even aware of, much less doing anything with. To today, we're looking at, you know, a trillion dollar asset class. And we're looking at something that involves the largest companies in the world, that draws attention from the largest governments in the world, that has inspired change, you know, in terms of the way that governments think about money, such that, you know, there are multiple, you know, sorts of attempts at creating digital versions of fiat currencies. So I think that, again, for me, it is important and it's not important because it brings people to the technology. It's important because just like when people invest in Tesla, they then oftentimes will become big fans of Tesla. It's the same thing here. If you have a financial interest in something that looks like it actually presents positive things for the world, then you are kind of 
emotionally invested as well as the confirmation bias will kick in and you'll start seeing it everywhere. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that can work the other way, too. If it underperforms, you know, people get mad at it. (laughs) Of course. But I mean, that's the game, right? Like the game is, is that you choose what you invest in and then you deal with the consequences. And if they're good, you feel good. And if they're bad, you feel bad. And hopefully you have strategies and, you know, tolerances to deal with all of that. So the part that just annoys me about all of this stuff is just the clearly unequal treatment. And clearly, again, like I hate it when there are people who are supposed to be the umpire, who are supposed to be the referee, right, who are supposed to enforce the rules. And instead, they pick a side. And by nature of picking a side, they then try to influence the outcome. And as with the SEC, again, like if what I'm saying is indeed correct and they'd have sort of picked a side. They're doing it in a way that's fundamentally dishonest because they're not being open about the fact that they've picked a side. They're instead trying to say, oh, no, there's this rule over here and there's this consideration over here when really none of that is true. They're using these mechanisms as a means to achieve an aim that they've already decided on. And I find that to be incredibly frustrating. It's not restricted to the SEC. Honestly, it feels like almost every authority that's out there is doing this in one form or another. Yes, that's the name of the game. It's a joker card of authoritarian bureaucracy is the ex post facto rationalization, right? It's like, we've already decided we don't like you. Now, everybody go to the library, pull out the books and find three justifiable reasons why we can deny them. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I almost wonder if this is going to become a scandal like you know, in a few years, we'll find out that there was like some kind of official policy to, you know, basically ignore and slow walk crypto companies or crypto funds that were applying to become ETFs. Almost like, do you guys remember like years ago when the IRS was found to be kind of like denying certain organizations that were like religious or conservatives for applying for nonprofit status and churches and stuff? And it was found to be like basically like an unstated policy. And that came out like later. And so I almost wonder if the same thing is going to happen with this. And then what? Exactly. The Panama Papers, too. (laughs) And then nothing happened. Yeah, right. Exactly. Except for the journalists who revealed it all died in a suspicious accident. But other than that, nothing happened. I mean, that's exactly what's going to happen, right? Yeah, we just have to wait, it seems. (laughs) So I have one kind of uh, left turn for us, but it's something that I don't think warrants its own episode, but which I've been looking at for the last couple of months, actually. So there's now a bill that was introduced into the U.S. Congress by a bipartisan pair of legislators, which is called the Accountability for Cryptocurrency in El Salvador Act. (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) I know. I got to stay with me. This is the congressional, the House representatives version of a bill that was introduced in the Senate. And I'm going to just quote from this. The rise in popularity of cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin creates questions in a necessary review of regulation and consumer protections, which the U.S. federal government should be involved in, said Representative Crawford, who is a Republican. Continuing the quote, El Salvador's hasty decision to adopt Bitcoin as legal tender causes concern for the stability of the U.S. Salvadoran economic relationship. It's our job as policymakers to better understand the potential effects of the adoption of Bitcoin as legal currency in El Salvador and what the U.S. can learn going forward, end quote. And as you get deeper into it, what you find out is that the supposed reason why this bill exists is because 
these legislators are concerned that El Salvador's, you know, 20 ish billion dollar GDP economy presents a threat to the 20 ish trillion dollar U.S. economy by nature of being involved with cryptocurrency in this way. And it's the most bizarre kind of like, do we really not have any other problems that warrant your attention as legislators? Oh, yeah. That this is the thing? The lady doth protest too much, methinks. <laughs> yeah. Did they do the same thing when El Salvador adopted the dollar as legal tender, too? <laughs> no, then it was the Russians complaining, but uh, that's just paranoid authoritarians. So quoting from the Democrat of the pair, Congresswoman Torres, El Salvador is an independent democracy, and we respect its right to self-govern. But the United States must have a plan in place to protect our financial system from the risks of this decision. What risks? I know. <laughs> OK, so did you see the response of the president of El Salvador, Bukele? I didn't know. Oh, the response, first of all, was delivered in a tweet. <laughs> As is most political dialogue these days. And I'm going to paraphrase, so I don't have it in front of me, but it was something to the effect of El Salvador is a sovereign country. Mind your own business. Keep out of ours. And he ended it with OK Boomer. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I love that. Yeah, that sounds about right. To the what is the risk question. This is sort of the funny part about this, right? Because the whole game here is that Bitcoin does present a risk to the U.S. financial system. It presents a risk because it presents an alternative and the U.S. financial system only continues to be dominant because it's a monopoly. And so whenever you have a monopoly and you have some type of upstart that can't be crushed and that presents an alternative, much less a better version of what the monopoly purports to do. Well, that always presents a risk. But as the monopoly, you're not supposed to say that. You're supposed to think it. <laughs> You're supposed to dismiss the upstart with a wave of your hand and nary a concern while trying to subvert it. Right, exactly. Like, sorry, was that bit, bit, Bitcoin? How do you pronounce that? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Never heard of it. What is that? Ponzi scheme? Yeah, no, we're doing serious business here. Next question. Exactly. So it's just funny because, again, this bill. And again, the same version in the Senate really tries to walk that line where it's like, this is about what El Salvador did, but we care because it has implications for us. But let's not talk about what those implications are, because that would make this worse. And what does this bill even purport to do? I'm like so confused. I think it funds or it proposes to fund a research group or study by Treasury and the Reserve or something like that. So it basically asks them to consider the question and do some research. That's all. It's also worth noting that this went through the Intelligence Subcommittee on Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence and Counterproliferation, right? So we're not messing around with like no banking or anything. Weaponized Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> they do have counterintelligence in their name. <laughs> <laughs> this goes counter to all intelligence. Yeah. Another thing from the press release that I just thought was really funny and which goes back to, again, the episode that we did last time. So uh, Moody's Sovereign Risk Group estimates that El Salvador may have lost as much as $22 million alone during one recent dip in the cryptocurrency market. Right. And so, again, like this is pervasive in any sort of like powers that be sort of, you know, releases or discussions of these topics is they look at the price of Bitcoin. You know, on a day when the price has gone way down and they compare it against what the value was at some arbitrary point in the past. 
and they say, look at these losses, when in reality, El Salvador hasn't actually sold those Bitcoin. And again, if you then, you know, wait for two months and the price is back up and now El Salvador looks like a genius, well, they just won't actually put that into their release because it doesn't support their case. And so, again, it's just all of this ridiculous disingenuousness that comes from this. I don't know. Like I said, like, I think my expectations are way too high. <laughs> well, let's call it what it is. This is deliberate disinformation and propaganda. And it's intended to create a situation of fear among those who have heard about Bitcoin. It's the same exact tactic. It would be laughable if it weren't happening on such a huge scale now. I mean, this is the exact same response I got from friends and family when I told them about Bitcoin. They're like, oh, no, that sounds very, very dangerous. You really shouldn't do that. And in this scenario, the U.S. government is grandpa and El Salvador is, is the young kid on the block trying something new. So, I mean, it's laughable, but at the same time, we have to look at this more seriously and identify it as what it is. This is deliberate fear-mongering and disinformation. Just like you see in any other authoritarian state, whenever interests of this size are threatened by something new, something that can't easily be squashed, they start pulling out every tool in the bag to try to tamp it down. And we're now at the stage of disinformation. That's all it is. Okay, and that's it for this episode of Speaking of Bitcoin. Today's show featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and myself, Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and Gertie Beats with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions or comments, you can send me an email at adam at speakingofbitcoin.show. And thanks for listening. 